Can y'all hear me? Yeah! Oh, Woo! I'll be loud, I'll be loud. It's really important to understand, it's really important to understand not just what we're doing, but also where we are doing, right? So can we speak with our building across the street? Yeah. With the now leasing sign on the side of it? Mm-hmm. Five years ago, this was a school. Five years ago, this was a school where black and brown youth got an education. That school was closed under Rahm Emanuel's school closures of 2013. Fuck Rahm! And Alderman Kaplan, who's the gay alderman of this ward, allowed it to be converted into luxury of condo building. Sell out! Sell out! And shut down the homeless encampment that folks who used to live in this neighborhood were living in because they've been forced out of affordable housing. academies, um, black misrepresentation in the form of a mayor and a political class, and a lot more. But before we actually start and get into it, I'm going to let Benji go ahead and introduce themselves. So, Benji. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan. I'm very excited to be here. My name is Benji Hart again. I'm originally from Amherst, Massachusetts, and I'm currently living in Chicago. I'm an author, artist, an educator, and I see a lot of my work as kind of connected to or revolving around Black liberation, trans liberation, queer liberation, and police and prison abolition as the core of that for me. And how long have you been in Chicago? I'm just curious. I'm almost, this week is actually my eighth year anniversary. So almost to the day I've been here for eight years. Sounds like it's some synergy happening. It's the perfect time to record this episode. And we can really dive right in. One of the struggles 
that has kind of sprung forth in the past few years from Chicago is around the COP Academy and specifically, you know, protest against the COP Academy. And I, I want listeners to understand this issue and to sort of, I think it's just a good place to start because in telling that story and learning about that, you learn so much context about policing and Chicago. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about this No Cop Academy movement and how, I guess, how it got started? Absolutely. So No Cop Academy was a coalition of about 104 different organizations in the city, ultimately about 104 organizations. And the campaign lasted from fall of 2017 until about spring of 2019. So about 18 months. And it was specifically protesting the construction of a $95 million, by the end of the campaign, $240 million police and fire training facility in the West Side neighborhood of Garfield Park, which is a predominantly Black, predominantly poor and working class neighborhood on the West Side. And the movement sprung up uh, because then Mayor Rahm Emanuel announced the construction of this academy on July 4th weekend of 2017, very under the radar. And most folks in the city didn't even catch the announcement that big facility was, was going to be built. But luckily, some abolitionist activists did and hopped on it very quickly and were like, we need to create a response to this. And part of the reason there was such a drive to, to respond to this particular scenario is that that same mayor, Rahm Emanuel, closed half of the city's free mental health clinics, six of the 12 mental health clinics in 2012, and 49 public schools in 2013, which was the largest single sweep of school closings in U.S. history, and affecting 88% Black students, 93% students living below the poverty line. So a very meticulously targeted attack on Black young people and Black families in the city. And of course, both times that the, the city made those cuts, it was because of the budget crisis and it was because of deficits in the budget and just not having the money to keep those facilities open. I believe it was two and a half million dollars they couldn't find in the budget to keep the mental health clinics open. And then suddenly, around five years later, after these schools are gone, some of these schools have been converted into luxury condos, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Some of these schools are being offered up as training facilities to the police department. Um, so just years after that really catastrophic event for Black communities here, suddenly the city wants to build this expensive academy. And folks really hopped on that as A, a huge hypocrisy, but B, also a way to make abolitionist organizing and abolitionist demands really concrete. That when you say abolish the police, that can sound scary to people, that can sound intimidating to people, even people who like the idea, it can sound impossible to people. And folks were really, and I say folks because I was not one of those folks, but folks were really shrewd in this intervention and being like, okay, if we have $95 million for this, how come we couldn't find two and a half million dollars for that? And actually the city can do whatever it wants. Actually, the city has unlimited resources and there is no pie in the way we think of it, the city can actually do and find the resources and pull the money from wherever it needs to when it wants to do something. And this is not actually about what the city can and can't do. It's about what the city wants to do. And it's about which residents matter and which residents don't, 
which residents the city wants to keep and pull in and which residents it wants to force out. And it's about policing and incarceration and those things not being inevitable and those things not being a necessity. And if the city has $95 million for the police, which already in Chicago um, receive something like the budget fluctuates with something like 1.6 billion a year, around 40% of the city's budget. If the most well-funded department of the city can get another $95 million for a new training facility, then we have the resources for mental health clinics. We have the resources for after-school programs, for jobs, for young people, for all the things that folks have been fighting for that the city constantly says there's no money for. My name is Tony. I'm here representing Voice, Voices of Youth in Chicago's Education. So um, I just want to start by saying that um, these folks, all, majority of these folks in this crowd has been pleading for, for investments in education, employment, housing, mental health clinic, and y'all have thrown at us a $95 million police academy that will do nothing for the community of Garfield Park. You, you are pitting, you are implementing a thing that is going to continue the overcriminalized black folks that are going to keep locking up these teenagers that has nothing better to do because y'all have not invested in them. Do not continue to make decisions for a community that you have not been in and you have not experienced the lives of these individuals that don't have a job, that can't go to school because y'all are not investing in it. You don't, you don't know how these folks live. You don't, you don't know how, how living in those conditions are in Garfield Park. So why would you suggest that, oh, okay, the uh, 95 police department will end the violence? Rum, you have been seeing this for the longest. You have been hiring new police officers for the longest. And we still have the violence. Right now, we are sitting at 603 deaths thus far, and hiring police officers have not dropped that rate. So you're not doing your job. And what a lady said Monday that this will be the biggest investments that you have made in Garfield Park. Now, somebody ain't doing their job if this will be the biggest investment that you have made in Garfield Park. Y'all aren't doing your job. Now, what, what I want to end by saying we have this police academy because I'm pretty sure y'all will continue to do this because y'all don't listen to the people. But y'all going to implement this police academy. But we are still going to have communities like Inglewood, Roseland, Abengreshen, Austin, North Lundell. Are y'all going to implement a police academy in those two to end the violence? How is this police academy going to affect the communities who are also in poverty, dealing with lack of funding for education, employment, and mental health? Just like y'all made that decision, y'all could have been like, okay, this is a good space to put a business there, a clinic there, a business there. 
but y'all chose a police academy. And like I said before, the only time black folks are on the top of your priority list is when it's time to start over-policing us and digging in our pockets. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is Reese White. Reese White. Hello, everyone. Um, it's my first time at a meeting like this, and I want to thank everybody that got up here and spoke. Even if we got opposing ideas, I learned something from everybody. Everybody feels a way about what's going on. But I'm here today. My name is Reese White. I'm here representing myself, my family, the west side of Chicago, and the city of Chicago. And I just want to say, as, as a parent that has a, a, a son that needs special needs, special education, for the cuts and the things that's going on in that realm, and the, the stuff I had to take care of personally within the last couple of weeks, keeping a six-year-old um, uh, like needy child into a school that's supposed to specialize in that type of care, but they response to somebody that's coming from the same community that's getting the opportunity to travel to go to the school is that they don't have the money for this kid to go to the school, so he should go to another school. In, in light of that, I just feel like a lot of the way that money gets used is usually not with the people in mind. So when y'all say y'all want to put that in that community and it's, it's a whole lot of money that y'all want to put in that community, Y'all gotta know that we notice that that money not acting for that community. It's not empowering those people. We not gonna make $95 million for having a police academy. We only gonna have more off-duty cops in the neighborhood and that's usually the scenario for a lot of the things that's going on that a lot of people got things that they worried about. But I'm gonna just keep it short and thank y'all for listening if y'all did that. Thank you. The next speaker is Maria Crawford. Maria Crawford. I am a student at National Teachers Academy. I am in the eighth grade. I'm speaking on behalf of the statement that NTA is trying to be closed. I've been a member at NTA since I was in kindergarten and I've been a part of the change. We are now a level one plus school and we've been hearing and fighting for our school to stay open. I have siblings and cousins and family members who go to this school who needs the education and our school has a very good support system. And I used to be a very shy little girl when I first came to NTA, but the opportunities that they've, get, that they've given me has, be, has shown me and taught me how to become a very young lady and how to react to certain situations. Um, the students and the teachers here, we are family and we like to say that it's not okay for you to take away something that's made us a whole and taught us valuable lessons to give it to someone else who hasn't worked as hard as we have. And we feel that this situation, this it. is very emotional for me because 
this situation is very emotional to me because I've been a part of the change and we, I've noticed and been and seen how our test score has rise, and it's not about the education. We've learned valuables of life. Like, they teach us how to react to situations. They taught us how to be more mature and not childish when it comes to certain things that might break you down. They taught us how to be strong, and we're whole and we're a family, and we don't appreciate you trying to close a school that's taught us and made us who we are since we were young. Thank you. The next speaker is Terry Smith. Uh, to kind of set the stage for what the campaign was and where it came from was that Rahm Emanuel also covered up video of Officer Jason Van Dyke shooting teenager Laquan McDonald, 17-year-old Laquan McDonald, 16 times. Um, that video was buried until after his re-election campaign in a very clear attempt to like quell organizing and rage in response to the video, in response to uh, Laquan's murder. And after the murder was, uh, the, the video was released, excuse me, and there were massive protests across the city, particularly in Black neighborhoods and Black communities, the Department of Justice came to Chicago and published actually a very damning report about the Chicago Police Department, citing racism at every level of the department and made a list of recommendations at the end of the report, something like a hundred different recommendations for how to address systemic racism in the police department. And one of the recommendations was an upgrade in facilities. And the Emanuel administration used that as justification for building the COP Academy. And so there was actually this messaging from city government of this is, this is what the Department of Justice told us to do. And we actually need new facilities to train police to be less racist. So the, the murder of Laquan McDonald was actually used as justification for the building of this new police facility to add insult to injury. So I also think that's an important piece of, the, of why uh, folks jumped on this uh, happening and, and made this interjection, but also why it was also a right moment for lots of folks who might not have signed on to a campaign like that previously to start to push themselves a little bit closer towards abolition. Well, and I think it is important to note the way that the Loquan McDonald case really plays into all of this, but also it's important to note who Rahm Emanuel was yeah. or is, I should say. <laughs> he is your sort of textbook neoliberal Obama Democrat. I mean, 
Obama has actually praised him, right? And these two are, are friends, essentially. So this isn't even some quote unquote conservative, far right, Trump, whatever you, the dominant mainstream discourse would like to label him. It just doesn't fit. He is a Democrat's Democrat doing these things. And I think that's important to note as well. Absolutely. And it's also a sort of textbooks reading of capitalism and the way that capitalism creates such a context for this racialized police violence and these police academies and stuff like that, right? Because we have <laughs> millions of dollars of funds who that are being rerouted from, from education and other places and going towards police. I'm wondering if there has been a lot of very productive and generative political education that has sprung forth from this as well around the nature of capitalism and money and the way these funds, where the funds go and what, I'm, I'm curious what kind of, you know, sort of pedagogy or education has sprung from this, if any. I want to say before I answer that question, I also want to say for the record that Rahm Emanuel was actually Obama's chief of staff while he was president. So he was actually on Obama's staff before he was the mayor of Chicago. So very closely politically tied to Obama. And unsurprisingly, I have never been an Obama fan. But when he really lost me and when I really, when I really kind of let go of the idea of, well, maybe, he's, maybe he can be reached or maybe he's just confused, when the school closings were actually in process, there were originally 150 schools slated to close. And then the city essentially pitted all those schools against each other to see which ones should stay open and which ones should open. So, so people, there were these massive meetings that parents were attending, arguing with each other. Some of them were really amazing with, with uh, parents and families shutting them down um, and calling the city out. But others of them were really terrible with parents and students arguing over why uh, someone else's school should close and why their students or their kids' schools should stay open. So it got really ugly. And Obama actually came to the city while this struggle was happening before the school closings had actually occurred and gave this speech on the South side that was textbook, as you say, just scolding, as King Yamada Taylor would say, kind of the black faces in high places trope, just a black person with power and clout condemning black families for their lack of discipline and lack of role models and blaming violence on the South side for parents and families not raising their children properly while Black parents and Black families were fighting tooth and nail to keep their children's schools open. And while his best friend was in the process of actively closing them. And to see that attack happening on Black people and for him to not even comment on it. To this day, he hasn't even ever mentioned the school closings as an event in his political home, quote unquote, of Chicago. But he was able to come to the city and condemn Black families and Black parents for not being role models to their kids. And like, that was, I have rarely been so infuriated. I have really been so angry as when that happened. So that's, again, some important history that I wanted to drop. But in response to your question about pedagogy, I'm really proud of the No Cop Academy campaign for many reasons. And I should say I was adult ally. Um, it was a youth-led campaign. Um, so the core organizers were Black and Brown youth from the South and West Sides who were supported by adult allies in shaping the campaign. And I was one of those adult allies. Um, so to make my uh, role clear. And one of the things about the campaign that I'm most proud of was that one of the major goals, if not the primary goal, was actually to train youth as organizers. 
um, and to bring in young black and brown people from Chicago into organizing and into abolition. And that was like the big goal in a lot of ways was like, regardless of whether we win this particular battle or not, we want to say that there are more people at the table and more people trained up and ready to fight for abolition in their own right and in their own individual communities by the end of this campaign than when we started. And in, and in some ways, that was a more important goal, since we all know as organizers, you have to take a lot of losses. So in some ways, that was a more central goal than, than winning the campaign, quote unquote, or uh, stopping the academy from being built. So because of that, there was actually a, a major focus on pedagogy and a major focus on not just what happens visibly and not just what happens in the news or on social media, um, but how we're actually building together, learning from each other and training each other, skill sharing with each other behind the scenes. And I, I think that was one of the reasons it was able to sustain itself, frankly, for so long was because folks weren't just organizing when the cameras were on or when there was a vote or when there was a you know important political event or intervention. The organizing was really happening through community building and through training folks up. And one of my favorite activities that I teach regularly in my own curriculum that came out of adult organizers creating pedagogy and workshops for the No Cop Academy campaign was this workshop that involves an activity called a crime map that was created together with folks from the campaign, where there's kind of two characters and you imagine a violent interaction between those two characters and then zoom out to ask what is going on in these individual fictitious characters' lives that led to this violent interaction. And it's an activity to help folks understand both what are the factors that lead to violence in our community and also that the police and prison systems fundamentally don't make interventions to stop violence. They come in after harm, after violence has occurred to punish people primarily Black and brown and trans and queer and immigrant and undocumented folks through locking them up. And that there's all these other things, mental health care, free health care, housing, healthy food. There's all kinds of other things that our communities are lacking that could actually prevent harm and violence. Um, and that the police and prison systems don't offer anything in those arenas. They're only able to come in after violence has occurred. And many times when I've done this activity with folks and kind of helped folks zoom out, many times we've ended at capitalism. <laughs> when, when we're kind of zooming out to be like, what led to this violent interaction? If you zoom out far enough, inevitably the answer is capitalism. When you ask, why was this person unstably housed? Why did they lose their job? Why wasn't their job paying them? a living wage? Why didn't they have access to mental health care? The further you zoom out, inevitably, the web connects itself back to capitalism. And that's been in a really a really amazing way of, of using that uh, activity as well, to, to teach abolition in a concrete way and in a, a, a material way, but also to show what are the systems that are that are leading to harm and violence in our communities, because we're so accustomed to blaming ourselves and each other. And I think it's a really helpful activity for that reason as well. That sounds like a really amazing activity. And I'm wondering if it's something that you could even put together and, you know, train other organizers around the country or in the world. I don't know how to do it. What are the best methods? What worked for you? What didn't, et cetera. I, I always love those kind of, you know, when you can, it's, it, for example, in Atlanta, we did Black Brunch. But from my understanding, Black Brunch came from Oakland, a radical Black activist out in Oakland. And Black Brunch is essentially you and a group of people, you pick a day, you go to the most popular brunch spots in the city and you disrupt this establishment and you do it in an educational way. You tell people afterwards if they want to go, they can go to this website and get this information or they can come to this protest or et cetera. 
But the point is that, you know, that was a tool and that was a tactic that we learned from other organizers. I participated in a black brunch here in Chicago. So I'm familiar. I was just going to say that's a really, I had not thought of that of like, yeah, we've, I've done the activity for many folks, but to actually train folks to teach the activity themselves, we, we haven't done that yet. I was actually relatively new to well-organized activism, I should say. Not new to activism, but new to well-organized activism when I first did Black Brunch. And it was such an incredibly empowering action that we did every weekend one summer. And knowing that that came from other radical Black people across the country, you know what I mean? It just, something about it felt yeah. very great. But getting back to the subject, I, so I work in news media. So that means that I literally spend a large portion of my day sifting through headlines and news stories almost all day, five days a week. It's very annoying. But I remember within a few months, the story stacked up. First, there was the story of dozens of mental health facilities and community centers in Chicago being closed down because of funding issues. Then there was the stories about the the bait truck, the right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. With the sneakers where they're trying to entrap young black kids to come onto this police vehicle and steal these shoes. Right. It's entrapment. It's literally entrapment. And then there was stories about violence in Chicago that always make headlines. And all this time, as these stories in the, and these are mainstream stories that are stacking up, I'm having to go to social media to find the stories about the No Cop Academy movement. And I'm having to go to social media and to the nocopacademy.com website to, to learn that the city of Chicago spends $4 million per day on police. So what do you make of this disconnect where you have on one side these stories that are making these headlines, they're very sensational and they are real problems, but then the actual causes of the problems and the resistance is, you know, mitigated to the margins. It's mitigated to social media. It's mitigated to independent media, activists, and organizers. I think it's pretty straightforward. I, I think in some ways, Chicago is the place that I've had to deal with it in the most upfront and the most exaggerated ways that I've ever had to deal with it because it's so it can be so night and day, like being at an actual protest and then going home and see what was covered on the news. The lies are so patent sometimes. I think that starkness is a little new to me living here in Chicago, but the phenomenon is not. And I know most of us, especially those of us who are folks of color, um, and certainly those of us who are politically engaged folks of color, know that the misrepresentation of our communities, but also the misrepresentation of our work and of our movements is necessary for both culling up the resources to repress those movements, but also to not let their messaging spread and to uh, discredit the messaging as well. And yeah, I have, I have an, an auntie who lives here in Chicago who's white and she's learned at this point to go to me for her news because she knows there's things she can find out about on ABC and there's things she can find out about in the Chicago Tribune and there's things she knows she's going to be misinformed about. And she's learned to ask me like, okay, so what actually happened last weekend? Or, you know, all right, I heard about this thing. What what do you think is really going on there? And because I very intentionally don't go to those media sources, I'm often shocked by what she's internalizing or what she's what she's heard. Because I'm like, that's how they're talking about this? Or that's how they're spinning this? It, it's, it can be really intense. And I think a great, I mean, there's 
thousands of examples. But I think a, a prominent recent example, not to jump the gun, but is with the massive protest that happened a couple weeks ago here in Chicago, demanding that the Columbus statue in downtown be taken down, which was very militant and involved folks trying to take the statue down physically, graffitiing the statue, clashing in a very bloody, very violent manner with police. It was such an intense and, and unusually violent, even here for Chicago, protest. And immediately afterward, the story on the mayor's lips and the, the, the refrain being repeated, repeated over and over again in mainstream media was that there was a peaceful protest and a small group of Antifa terrorists infiltrated it and it turned violent because of these infiltrators who took the, the protest over. And I was there and I could tell you everybody knew what was about to go down and pe- not everyone knew how or when or why, but everybody knew what we were there to do. Everybody was on the same messaging and everybody was in support of what was going down. And it was a complete lie to imagine that there were two different groups of people that were clashing in this protest or, you know, that one smaller group had infiltrated like that was a complete fabrication. And again, per your point, it's literally a Trump talking point for the black, lesbian, progressive, democratic mayor to use a literal Trump talking point to discredit uh, a incredibly unified demand of specifically Black and Indigenous people in her city is, it should raise all kinds of alarms. It should raise all kinds of alarms. And we see things like this happen so frequently. So to me, if you want to look at one of the most obvious sites of overt white supremacy and racism and the, this, the deep influence of those uh, of white supremacy in, in U.S. civil society. Look at how white people and the media and the state and politicians talk about Chicago. And it's been made synonymous. Yes. Right. With with so many racial tropes and so much racism and yes. anti-black stereotypes and myths and histories. And to, to connect back to that with that same original example that then, of course, after there was this militant protest, uh, Trump was threatening Chicago with federal troops. Um, and Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who is our current mayor, played up on social media and in the media, as she always does, this opposition, this fierce opposition um, to Trump. And I'm going to stand up. You're not going to tell me what to do. And folks love it. Folks lap it up every time. And specifically this time, she was like, I, in no way are federal troops going to come here. I will not allow Donald Trump to send his troops here. Chicago isn't having it. And the girls loved it. And then she got on a call with him and 24 hours later said, actually, I talked to the president. He's not sending troops. He's sending agents that are going to support the Chicago Police Department. And they're not here for the protesters. They're here to stop gun violence on the South Side. And there had been a surge in gun violence that weekend, right? So per your exact point, gun violence, whenever we say gun violence in Chicago, we know we mean Black people. It's, it's synonymous with Black people, and it's become a, a dog whistle here, as well as, as you say, in the national media, that when people talk about gun violence in Chicago, everyone knows they mean Black folks poor and working class black communities here. And whenever we say we're going to do, we need to address gun violence, it means we need to send more police to the South side. We need to send more um, police into black and brown communities. And this time it was federal agents and Lori Lightfoot was using, again, those 
racist talking points to justify federal agents coming and swarming the South Side. And it, again, should have let so many folks know who didn't clock it, who this person, what team this person is actually on and what is actually going on um, whenever there's this surge in, in law enforcement here in Chicago. In the same way that closing schools is a self-fulfilling prophecy for you eventually needing more police, right? And so closing schools, closing hospitals, closing mental health facilities, closing community centers to reroute money to police is what we in academia would call teleological. It's self-fulfilling, right? You're creating the you have you you have the answer you want already. You're just working towards getting there. Of course, there's going to be more increased gun violence when you're taking away all these things that are known to decrease gun violence, right? Yes. And I'm wondering, do you think that because Chicago, especially, and and the Black residents of Chicago are sort of the punching bag for white America, right? The refrain to Black people protesting to not be fucking killed is, well, why don't you care about gun violence in Chicago? As if there aren't already dozens, if not hundreds of organizations doing that work right? Who don't get the resources because the resources go to police. Precisely. Um, so I'm wondering if you think that when, when this rhetoric centers this one place so hard, when Chicago starts to win, right? When the No Cop Academy movement becomes successful, when police departments become defunded, when the fangs of this, you know, this white racism that uses Chicago as a punching bag, when that is removed, do you think that that like this city holds so much for the rest of the country. Does that make sense? Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that was even a coherent question. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of rambling there. I think. And I don't want you to have to feel like, you know, you're the authority or expert or anything like that. I just value. I'm definitely not. There are so many examples of this, as you say, Um, but I'm thinking about good kids, mad city. Um, which is a a youth-led organization here that specifically tackles gun violence and includes police shootings as a form of gun violence. And they're one of the few gun violence organizations I know in the country that is actively abolitionist and that is actively focused on addressing gun violence through abolition and through um, redistributing resources in the city to black and brown young people um, and, and getting young people the resources and the support that they need by defunding police, prisons, and all these other systems of death. Um, and I think their work is so important because folks love, actually, as you say, the anti-gun violence campaigners, because so often those are black folks that help reinforce the racist image that white folks already have. Folks love the pastor or uh, the young person who will get on the mic or you know, speak on the news and will talk about how terrible gun violence is in the Black community and will be happy to blame the same old sources for it in the exact ways that Obama did when he was visiting, that it's about lack of leadership and it's about no role models and it's about a depraved culture amongst young people and it's about the music they listen to and we know all of those talking points. So I think it's so important and so powerful to have young Black people saying, of course we care about gun violence. Of course we mourn and we rage and we protest every time someone we love is killed. And the fact that you're not seeing that is about A, the media you consume, but B, your inability to see Black people as people 
who grieve and mourn and and feel rage and loss the same way that anyone else does. And like, of course we are organizing when we lose young people. And of course we are organizing when we use our, our lose our friends and family members. Um, and for us, we don't see us as the problem and we don't see our friends and our family members who were lost as the problem. Um, and in their name, we're not throwing them under the bus. We're not throwing ourselves and other young Black people under the bus. We're calling out the actual systemic roots of gun violence um, in the demands that we're making. And I am so appreciative of their work and inspired by their work because that narrative is not new, but, but having an organization very specifically devoted to it, because people love, and they be playing people all the time because people love, they're like, oh, you're an anti-gun violence organization from the South side of Chicago, yeah, we'd love to talk to you. And come to find out they got a very different agenda than what folks thought when they invited them on the news or, you know, what have you. Um, so they're, they're an org that uh, means a lot to me. But there's so many orgs, as you say, doing that work in so many different kinds of ways here in Chicago. And that's never what's held up. And of course, that's on purpose. So I don't want to switch it up too abruptly, but I do want to talk a little bit about the current protests and the current movement in the street at the time of us recording this. And I think that there are many connections to be made between the No Cop Academy work, the anti-gun violence work, anti-police and the abolitionist work, all that has been happening in the city, much of which has been happening for several years and decades, et cetera, et cetera, by, led by Black people. and. I'm curious if when this wave of post-George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade protests hit the country, was it a situation like I noticed between D.C. and Atlanta where whatever grievances already existed, right, whatever anger towards local politicians and the capitalists and the police already existed from years past, it just united with this new found righteous rage that George Floyd's death, Breonna Taylor's death, and Tony McDade's death, what those deaths caused was so much anger that I think united, kindled, and joined, and made a fire even bigger. Could you say the same about Chicago and from what you've seen? Absolutely. I think names that immediately rose up again, as they should, um, and it was beautiful to see, um, was Rakia Boyd uh, here in Chicago. Um, Laquan McDonald, of course, um, but also uh, Betty Jones um, and Quintonio Legreer. Uh, Quintonio was a young man who was having a mental health crisis. Um, and I believe a family member called the police asking for help and police shot through the doorway, I think before even opening the door and killed him and Betty Jones, who was an older neighbor and who had been very involved in worker rights movements here in Chicago. So that was like a really tragic police murder that again, rarely gets held up in some ways, not even enough here in Chicago um, and certainly not nationally. Um, so to see some of those names reemerge and to see people make the connections and to see people rage for George Floyd, for Breonna Taylor, for Tony McDade, seeing, seeing Tony McDade's name coming up much more regularly here in Chicago was also a big deal and a big shift. But, but also seeing the names of folks we know so well and, and folks that we've been fighting for for years, as you say, to see their names reemerge alongside those new names 
was of course painful and also encouraging and also heartwarming. In a June 2020 article called The Principles of Pride, Police and Prisons Do Not Belong in Our Future, you sort of lay out a roadmap for your own personal understanding, but also for other readers to understand why police do not belong at pride events, pride marches, pride rallies, pride festivals, whatever it may be. And you mentioned in 2015, you participated and have multiple times since then in actually blocking the Chicago Pride Parade and demanding no police and pride, uh, an end to stop and frisk, no new jails, and a reinvestment in housing and social services for trans and queer youth. I'm curious, what were the lessons you've learned in retrospect doing this work? What was some of what has come from that? And how, because to me, this seems like an early expression of abolitionist politics and a conversation that has now gone viral, you were participating in several years ago, basically. As I laid out in that essay, um, my first violent interaction with the police was when I was 18 years old, um, visiting good friends of mine in the Bronx, New York. And it definitely was a moment that radicalized me, especially as a middle-class, light-skinned Black person, because who is from a police family and has police officers as family members. Because I had been taught such a different narrative about the police and not even necessarily to revere them, just not to be afraid of them. And having having that moment where I really did fear for my life, it made so many other things that other people in my life had told me and taught me really click in a new way. And I, no one had taught me about abolition at that point. I didn't have any of that language or was not inculcated in that political discourse at that moment. But I knew, I really knew in that moment that something was rotten at the core of the system. And it didn't, I didn't get stuck on any I just had one bad experience. This is an isolated event. I knew something was rotten. And in some ways, that's what was so invigorating about Black Lives Matter in 2014 and 2015 was so many of us have had these experiences as young Black people, as young Black women and trans people and queer people, and dominant narratives about policing, but also dominant narratives about police violence often teach us that those are isolated events. And Black Lives Matter igniting this realization that's what it was for me and i think it was for a lot of other black people that we are all having these experiences around the clock in every town and city in this country was such an important moment of realization i think for a lot of folks um certainly for me for me understanding abolition as a black practice as something rooted in uh, historic black struggles dating back to the abolition of slavery but also seeing it as a queer and trans struggle and as abolition as a queer way of thinking and a, a queer way of approaching the social systems that are oppressing us and that we are navigating every day um, is really important to me. And I think Black women and Black queer folks and Black trans folks made a lot of these connections before other people did. And I think that's because our lives connect these systems in ways that other peoples don't. And the, the multiple sources from which we receive violence show, uh, show a web or, or demonstrate a, a kind of ring or cycle of harm that includes the state, includes agents of the state, includes our partners, includes our families, includes 
schools and hospitals and all these places where we're told we're supposed to find safety. And so for me, I hope it's not a cliche response, but for me, it really is a question of intersectionality because I think folks who live at these intersections can see the, the pathways that lead them all back to each other in ways that folks who don't sometimes have a harder time seeing. And so, you know, some of the girls are a little late. 2020 is a little late to be figuring it out that we need to abolish this stuff. But at the same time, I know it's because of the work of Black women. I know it's because of the work of Black young people, Black trans people, Black queer people, and Black folks from the hood, which I think is also important to name, that we're here because folks have been countering the narrative at every turn. And, and it's taken a long time to get here, but folks have been saying for such a long time, no, this is not the reform we want. No, <laughs> this, this system cannot be beautified. It's been doing the same thing to us for decades, for generations. And it's exciting to be in this moment where more and more people are having that realization and are open to much more radical responses to what we do once we have that realization. Absolutely. And when we talk about intersectionality, more and more and more, I have begun to look at it as a sort of double-sided sword, because I think that the popularity and virality of this notion of intersectionality, including some understandings that are very co-opted, right, and, and uh, that, that obfuscate the actual intent and purpose of intersectionality, have been adopted by the state and I, I, agents of the state. And I'm thinking a lot about who you mentioned earlier, Lori Lightfoot, being the Black lesbian woman mayor of Chicago and using this identity to really skirt around lots of accountability. I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit, because she was just relatively recently elected and there was a big pushback actually from the Black and Brown TLGBQ community against her. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about her role as mayor as it relates to her identity and this real pinkwashing of her crimes. Absolutely. And that's a great segue because I, in the first essay that I wrote about Lori Lightfoot shortly after her election, which was just a little over a year ago, I cited Kimberly Crenshaw because uh, the, the election and the hype around a Black queer woman being, being the new mayor of Chicago was absolutely, it was a, a perfect example of the co-optation of intersectionality. Because when we go back to the source, when we go back to the actual work of Black feminist scholars in creating this term and this ideology, it's all about expanding who is included in movement. It's all about understanding that there, we can't talk about Black issues without talking about queer issues. We can't talk about feminist issues without talking about class issues. Um, and the idea of this philosophy is that it's supposed to grow the movement and it's supposed to grow who is included and who is at the table organizing. And the co-optation is we just find one individual with all of those intersections and we elect them to a position of power which was not, that's not like what any Black feminist scholar was talking about or trying to do with the creation of, with the coining of intersectionality. So it's a really golden example of co-optation. For folks who don't know, and very intentional co-optation, let's be clear. For folks who don't know, uh, Lori Lightfoot is our current mayor. She's a former corporate lawyer, has represented a bunch of sort of 
far-right conglomerates. I believe Philip Morris is one of them, if I'm not mistaken. So just known for representing the worst of the capitalist class as a lawyer. And Black folks in the city specifically know her. And in fact, Black queer women specifically know her um, because she was head of the police oversight board at the time that uh, folks were fighting to get Dante Servin, the off-duty officer who shot and killed 22-year-old Rakia Boyd, fired from his job. So our first interaction with Lori Lightfoot, and specifically the young Black queer women who were leading the Say Her Name campaign to get justice for Rakia Boyd's murder, were the first ones to have a real interaction with Lori Lightfoot before any of us knew she would one day be running for mayor. And she notoriously kicked black and brown women out of those meetings, silenced family members who were grieving and crying, telling them to be quiet, um, was dismissive and completely, you know, unengaged while young black people were testifying on behalf of Rakia Boyd and her family. Um, So just really insulting and harmful treatment of young black people and very specifically young black queer women by this black queer woman Um, defending an officer for killing a 22-year-old Black girl. And so, frankly, it was young Black queer women who were the loudest uh, when she was running for mayor, when she was a candidate, saying, if you actually care about what Black queer women think and Black queer women want and need, listen to the Black queer women who are saying, this person is not it. Um, And just because this person happens to be Black, Um, and happens to be a lesbian does not mean she advocates for people who share those identities with her. And we can tell you that for a fact, because she was our primary opposition when we were trying to get justice for Rakia Boyd. And so seeing, seeing which Black women's voices and which Black queer voices were held up and given completely undeserving hype and attention... Um, and seeing which Black queer people and which Black women's voices were ignored and were poo-pooed and were dismissed uh, at that time was extremely telling uh, about how Lori Lightfoot got to the position that she's in currently. You wrote an article, actually, the one you mentioned in The Advocate, it's called Chicago's First Black Lesbian Mayor Isn't a Victory for All Queers. And I remember when this came out around maybe a year and a half ago, I read it and I understood instantly. Like I felt so affirmed because in Atlanta, we we fought the, the same fight. Atlanta is known as the quote unquote black Mecca, sometimes the black gay Mecca. Most of the local politicians are black, many of which are also queer. And so anything activists do, any pushback against these people, any pushback against the state or more specifically the local officials in Atlanta and around Atlanta, we're told we can't do it and we shouldn't do it and we're being unruly and that these Black people are actually just carrying the torch. And with our current mayor, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, the very first thing she did in office, if I'm not mistaken, was give the police a raise across the city, (laughs) a citywide raise, which came from actually traffic tickets and petty fines. Mm -hmm. That's that's what we would call incentivized policing, which is technically Mm -hmm. illegal in this country, although it happens in literally every single police department, right? Right. And even right now in the wake of all these protests, she has went out of her way to, like you said, uh, invite the National Guard in despite uh, performing otherwise, performing as if she was so against the idea 
she has brought rappers onto TV to tell black people to stop protesting and stop burning stuff down. I saw that go by. You, you know, it's it's just a very similar story. Even here in D.C. with with Muriel Bowser, the mayor of D.C., a black woman, it's the same thing where identity trumps all in this formation, not the actual politics, not the policies, not that they are pro-capitalism, pro-Israel, not that they are gutting housing and public funding for schools and mental health facilities and hospitals in favor of police and prisons. So how, how can we organize against this, right? How can we move in such a way, understanding that Black people in this country are the revolutionary class? That is a fact that history has proved time and time again. So how do we as Black people who are now having to go against an entire crop of Black politicians put in place literally for the purpose of stifling revolutionary momentum, how do we organize against that? How do we fight that? And again, I know that's a pretty big question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an educator. So again, I hope this isn't a, a stock answer or a cliche answer, but I do think political education is so important. A, because we need to share a vision and we need to share values beyond identity. And I don't know that we always organize from that place that, you know, the point of this formation is a shared value or the point of this this battle that we're fighting is to move our city or move our community in this specific direction. And it's not about the identities per se of the people who are willing to do that. It's about understanding who benefits from us doing that when we get there. And so I've, I've had to say this to a lot of white people in my life, but uh, when white people in particular are like, but aren't you excited? Like, don't you at least think it's a big deal? Isn't it at least historic to have a black mayor, to have a queer alder person, to have whatever, whatever? My first response is always, you betray the fact that you don't know that many black people if you think that's a victory because when you belong to an actual black community, when you belong to an actual queer community, you know, A, that some people ain't shit, that just because someone is black does not mean they have your back, does not mean they give a fuck, does not mean they give a fuck about other black people, does not mean they care for, fight for, advocate other queer people, other women, whatever the identity is in question. So the idea that just because someone is X means that they share the universal values of everyone else who is X, to assume that they will, in that position, advocate for everyone who shares the identity of X is foolish. And folks who actually belong to those communities know how foolish it is because we know how complicated our communities actually are. Um, And we know how vast the, the, the spectrum of opinions and values and needs and ideas is in our communities. And so that essentializing, while we are certainly guilty of it or, or certainly capable of it as folks from marginalized identities and communities, it's so obviously white folks, folks of wealth, folks of power who love the visual of a Black leader, who love the visual of a gay leader because it, A, justifies something for them that should not be justified. It justifies for them that that means they have done something on behalf of those communities. That means they care about and have advocated those communities in some way by propping up someone who happens to be from one of those communities. But it also, as you say, very intentionally creates a buffer. 
where that's the thing that we did. We got a black person elected. And if the black person we elected happens to be ultra conservative, and if the black person we elected happens to care much more about raising property values than they do about providing social services for poor and working class people, that's beyond my control. <laughs> because the point was just to get a black person there. The point was just to break the barrier. And I think some people participate uh, in that kind of thinking from a place of political immaturity. Um, but I think some people participate from a place of deep political maturity and knowing by having black people in those positions, we can actually push, push much more racist policies than we could if it was a white person pushing it. By having a queer person in those positions, we can actually do much more actively harmful things uh, to poor and working queer uh, communities, to trans communities, um, than we could if it was a straight person spitting that kind of vitriol, if it was a cis person saying those kind of terrible, awful, um, anti-trans things. Um, so I think there's a lot of complicated movement happening when we see these, you know, that Black political class rising or that queer political class rising, because that's a whole thing too. But as you say, I think some of it is ignorance and some of it is not. Some of it is people very intentionally pushing far right agendas under the guise of progressive, which has just come to mean someone who's a person of color, which it shouldn't. Um, and Lori Lightfoot is a primary example of that. I'm less familiar with uh, DC and Atlanta's mayors, but Lori Lightfoot is a case study. I just use DC and Atlanta because, I mean, I'm from Atlanta, you know, that's what I, it's what I know, it's where all my organizing, but I think that in this discussion specifically is where the elision or the omission of the word class really comes into play. Because just because someone is black, that doesn't tell me what their class politics are. Because we know we have entire classes of black gentrifiers now who, <laughs> who would like to see me go to jail, who think that me, being pro me protesting is an arrestable offense because I might ruin their property, right? So and this is a relatively new development in the US, just a few decades really that this black gentrifier sort of upper middle class has been building itself. And I think this is where the omission of deeper politics of what are your, what's your actual stance on black liberation? What's your stance on capitalism and class? What's your stance on feminism? You know what I mean? These are where these sort of deeper discussions of politics are intentionally omitted. And because they have been omitted for so long, people often don't know that they need to ask these things. Mm. I think a lot about when Issa Rae at the red carpet was asked who she was rooting for. And she said, I'm rooting for everyone black mm. and how popular and viral that phrase went. And I actually hate it <laughs> because everyone black, everyone black includes Barack Obama and Bill Cosby and Stacey Dash and Candace Owens, right? Everyone black includes Herman Cain. Everyone Black includes some of the worst people we know. So in what way does everyone rooting for everyone Black and supporting everyone Black indicate political sophistication? Because I must have missed where it indicates political sophistication or political depth. It's a beautiful sentiment. And there's a part of me that understands it. Um, but I think it is very dangerous for the exact reasons that you're saying. And I really appreciate your naming class analysis as a key facet 
that's missing in how we ask these questions and how we figure out, frankly, who's on our team um, and who's fighting for the things that we're fighting for. I don't know that I'd actually kind of conceived of it that way, but I, I, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I have to give credit to really like, she's basically my best friend, but Asia Parks in Atlanta, she's a radical lawyer and organizer. And she is the one, cause Atlanta has such a large upper middle class and gentrifying class of black people. And she said to me one time, she said, there's neighborhoods full of black people who would not hesitate to call ICE on an undocumented immigrant. That's right. Who call the police on quote unquote, sketchy looking black people in their neighborhoods who own property and want you off of it. And so when she said that, I was like, wow, they are all aligned, not to the race, (laughs) or at least maybe not in the same way that me and you are. Right. Right. They're much more aligned to a class position and to a position, a certain relationship to the state that I am not interested in having and may never have. Yes. And even if it's, even if it's racial alignment, it's racial alignment that is very much carved out through class. It's not an allegiance to Black people. It's an allegiance to a subset of Black people who share class interests um, and who share class values. Um, And I think that's extremely important to name. As a middle-class Black person, I think that's extremely important to name because I also think the rooting for everybody Black actually benefits those folks as a way of, of, you know, claiming downness or not not being seen as a gentrifier or not actively n- refusing to name themselves as a gentrifier because they're a person of color, because they're Black, because they're queer, on and on and on. Um, mm-hmm. So this idea of, of, of racial unity, I would argue benefits folks like me or, you know, benefits folks with class privilege as a way of like, we actually don't have to talk about that. We actually don't have to go there and be real about not just what our different lived experiences have been, but as you say, what our values are. Um, and what vision for the world we actually want. Absolutely. When I think of the killer mics of the world or T.I., Barack Obama, Michael Eric Dyson, mm-hmm. I could I could go on forever. Lori Lightfoot, <laughs> Keisha Lance Bottoms, Muriel Bowser, <laughs> Omarosa, mm-hmm. Herman Cain. I came across this term in Black Agenda Report. I think it was very popular, popularized by Glenn Ford, the Black misleadership class. Yes. And it's literally a class of people who are, it's it's both aspirational and a actual class, right? At the same time, they're aspiring to be in this other class and distance themselves from the working class Black masses. And at the same time, they may actually be in that class, right? To align with capitalism and to align with imperialism and to align with the patriarchy and transphobia, yes. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When I came across this term, Black misleadership class, I was like, wow, this is actually, they are misleading because they're misdirecting so much potential radical energy into these other avenues. Yes. So I'm really glad we got into this discussion. Yes. Can I actually say one thing in response to your last statement? I actually, I have actually been thinking about Herman Cain so much, and I think I've been struggling over the last week or so to kind of figure out why I was thinking about him so much and why his name and his image has been coming up for me so much um, after his death due to COVID-19. And I think in a complicated way, I've actually been feeling grief around uh, the death of Herman Cain, which is something I never thought I would say, is something I never thought I would feel. But I think that's what I'm feeling 
And I think the death of the exact type of Black person that we are discussing, uh, a member not just of the political class, but aspirational to whiteness and deeply, deeply devoted to white supremacy at the expense of all other Black people, to see him die of COVID-19 and to see it barely be a blip on the screen of the folks that he spent his entire life protecting and advocating for um, and being an intermediary for, it's tragic to me, actually tragic. And I'm feeling grief around it, um, not because I grieve him as a figure or a person or any of the work that he did, because as you say, it was all toxic and violent and terrible, but grieving a Black person who really literally gave their life to white supremacy, um, literally sacrificed their own life for white supremacy and watching the, the exact machine, the exact structures uh, that they spent so long defending just chew, chew up their memory and spit it out and on to the next Black person who's willing to sacrifice themselves to maintain this structure, to maintain this order. It's just, it's, it's really genuinely tragic. And I think it's a cautionary tale, um, but I also think it's like, uh, it's in, in response to some of what you're saying, I also wonder what it signals to other members of that class. Because I'm watching it going, it was for nothing, you know? You, you never got there, you never made it. And at the end, you were nothing to the exact people that you were protecting. And we all knew, you know, the, the Black folks on the other side were like, they don't give a fuck about you. You don't matter to them. Um, but to see, to see that be illustrated in such a intense and violent and public way, it actually fills me with some grief. And I grieve for other Black people. I grieve on some level for the Lori Lightfoots and the Bottoms and the Obamas and the other people who as you say, in some ways have achieved it, in some ways are a part of that class, and in other ways are aspiring to something that doesn't care about them and will will chew them up and spit them out whenever it's their time. Well, and it's fascinating because we didn't plan on discussing this at all because we didn't plan on Herman Cain dying, but I have been thinking a lot about what his death means. And you hit the nail on the head, right? What was it for? Was it worth it? You you got nothing. You got nothing. I mean, you got some notoriety. I'm sure you got some money. But at the end of the day, the very people who you gave your life to be in the room with shared one tweet about you and moved on, if that. If. And when they shared that tweet, it might have been the wrong Black person in the picture. And because I, I mourn for the lost souls. Hmm. I really do. And I, it might be because I'm Muslim and I look at things from a very sort of Islamic perspective, often sort of mourning for the lost souls is a, a recurring theme in a lot of Sufi Muslim poetry. But I really do mourn for the people like Herman Cain, like Omarosa, like Candace Owens, like Stacey Dash, like Don Lemon, right? Because that means in some degree, it's a failure on our part as organizers, as educators, and as conscious Black people. Hmm. And so I use, I've been using this time, not grieving Herman Cain, but grieving that we lost the soul of someone who, who, to my understanding, may have had something to really offer us and to offer a movement and to offer Black people. I, I think that 
he had expertise and he had knowledge and he chose, he actively chose to make sure that that was not given to us, that that was not for us, right? And what that means has filled up a lot of space, both in my head and in my heart in the past few days, truly. So thank you for bringing that up and for keeping this episode kind of relevant to what's happening right now, because we can't talk about the Black misleadership class and not talk about his death as it literally just happened. Yeah. My friend Juliana, who's um, Afro-Colombian and who I highly recommend you have on this show. She would be so great. She's such a smarty pants. But I was talking to her about it. And she also talked about the loss of other possibilities for that person's life, too, that we all know those Black people that were in our lives and our families that were like, I just want you to come around. I just want you to figure it out. I just want us to like get to the place where we can actually like see eye to eye on this issue or on this struggle. And we hold out hope for so many of the people in our lives, especially Black people that we love and care about. And, and to know that like that possibility is gone, like the possibility of coming back around, the possibility of waking up, the possibility of making amends of, of recognizing the harm that you've caused and, and actually taking steps to address it, like that, that, that alternate future is also gone with his passing. And his whole book is, is written and it ends with him sacrificing himself for the exact people that he fought so hard to get the rest of us to sacrifice ourselves to. And it's, it's a tragic ending. I, I wish better for him and I wish better for other members of, of his cadre. <laughs> well, and this is a tale as old as colonial time, yeah. right? They, I mean, Walter Rodney and Franz Fanon both talked about the class of African sellouts who were essential to making colonialism happen. And they don't reap the rewards of it. And if they do, it's in part, and it's partial and it's crumbs, right? We can look at Omarosa selling out her soul to work for... Donald Trump only to be violently kicked out of the White House and disregarded as a meme and a joke and never spoken about by the Trump administration again. Mm-hmm. We can look at Candace Owens, who has put herself as the face of racism in America, if I'm being quite honest, the voice of it, I should say, only to eventually say she experiences a lot of racism in these spaces. What do you expect? Being surrounded by racists intentionally, right? And you're absolutely correct. There are There are people in my life who I have politics who I disagree with, Black people I'm speaking specifically about, who I I don't give up on. There's very, very few people who I give up on. Now, someone like Herman Cain, who wielded state power and grabbed a massive platform and money and had the actual power to implement very harmful policies and whatnot, or not implement helpful policies, I should say, I think it is a little bit more complicated and different. But thinking of how he relates to Black people in my life, and I don't have any Black Trump supporters in my life, I should clarify that for people who can't see my face right now as we're talking. It is definitely a conversation that that we have to begin to wade into. And even muddying those waters, I'm not going to, we're not going to go in on this because I'm not about to get canceled today. (laughs) But, you know, thinking of Black capitalists who aren't even outwardly, quote unquote, Republicans and Trump supporters, but who are still amassing wealth by exploiting people. People who are putting out "quote unquote" black Pan African Afrocentric movies on a Disney streaming site and making millions off of it, or 
these celebrities who make their entire career off of discussing and lyricizing black plight, but who have nothing for the black community to give but peanuts in this moment of movement. Mm -hmm. So it is a much larger conversation, definitely. And I'm just very glad that you brought that up. And I appreciate that. And for the record, I actually do have black Trump supporters in my life, being from a law enforcement family, being from a military family. I got some some complicated folks, some complicated black folks in my life that I have some hard, complicated conversations with. But exactly as you say, these are poor and working class black folks that I'm related mm. to. They are not senators. They are not mayors. They are not uh, ultra wealthy black folks right. spewing the same vitriol. So I, I, I appreciate that distinction. Mm. But I do salute people who are willing to endeavor, who, who don't give up on people, mm. right? I guess that's the point I'm making. And lastly, before we sign off on the podcast, because we've been talking for over an hour now, I know your, your voice is probably just as tired as mine. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you have going on right now. What are the initiatives in the streets? What's the movement like? What is the sound of the pulse of the streets right now, where you are and with what you're doing? Um, there are massive, unprecedented calls in Chicago for the defunding of the Chicago Police Department. And defunding the police has become a mainstream call here, as I know it has in, in other parts of the country as well. And I am so encouraged by that. I'm so excited. The Black Abolitionist Network uh, is a new formation that's training up hundreds of people on how to disseminate information to their communities about defunding and abolishing the police um, and is leading a, a, a number of different campaigns uh, demanding that. Young people have been taking over the intersection regularly uh, across the street from the mayor's house, from Lori Lightfoot's house, setting up camp there, uh, demanding that uh, CPD be defunded and, and fuck CPD um, to the tune of YMCA has become uh, an anthem in the streets here in Chicago. So that's real cute. But those young folks also are very specifically demanding cops out of schools. Uh, right now, uh, the Chicago Police Department gets $33 million a year. That's, again, in addition to their massive budget from the Chicago Public Schools. So the CPS, the massively underfunded, undercut, uh, struggling through austerity Chicago Public Schools, pays $33 million every year for police officers and in a contract with police officers to patrol about 70 CPS schools, which is actually a small number of them. And so young people are fighting really hard to lift the demand to get cops out of schools, pointing out not just how much money that is, but also that it's for a relatively small number of police officers in a relatively small number of schools. And that canceling that contract would actually be easy. And there's an, a new vote uh, this month about whether that contract will be renewed. Um, so I definitely encourage folks to watch that here in Chicago and specifically lift up the voices of young black and brown people who are fighting really hard um, to lift up that demand. And the last thing that for me is really important to name, there's so many things to name, but one I really want to lift up, especially in light of this conversation about Lori Lightfoot, is that Hillco, which is a private developer with money, putting money in the pockets of all kinds of politicians here in the city, has bought and is trying to demolish a coal plant in La Villita Little Village, which is a predominantly Mexican poor and working class neighborhood. They botched a demolition in May, if I'm not mistaken, April or May, that covered the neighborhood in a cloud of dust. 
um, led to a huge spike in COVID-19 cases and deaths immediately after that demolition. Lori Lightfoot acted all mad about it, come to find out she had been CC'd on every email and she had okayed the demolition in the midst of a pandemic. Specifically, Mexican folks from the South and uh, Southwest side have been leading demonstrations against her and against Hilco that have received very little coverage in mainstream media. And two more demolitions have happened since the first botched one after Lori Lightfoot promised there would not be any more demolitions while the pandemic was happening. Two more have taken place. Um, And it's important to note that Hilco CEO sits on the board of the Chicago Police Foundation um, and so is directly involved in raising private money for the Chicago Police Department. And exactly as you say, like that the capitalist class is also deeply invested in making sure the police department is not defunded should come as a surprise to no one. But environmental racism um, is a huge issue in Chicago as it is any anywhere else where there are large numbers of black and brown and poor and working class people. And I feel like that often gets a lot less hype in media, but also that we're, we're less actively making those connections in our movements as well. And seeing how incredibly tied environmental racism and policing and incarceration are, I think is a really important part of the Hillco battle. So I really want to lift up El Bejo, um, Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, as well as immigrant communities on the Southwest side who are fighting this incredibly violent attack on, on their health in the midst of a global pandemic. Again, very much under the hand of Lori Lightfoot. I also would love for folks to pay attention to that and, and lift up that battle as well. And I want everyone listening right now, if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy Benji's words, so go to BenjiHeart.com. That is B-E-N-J-I-H-A-R-T.com and engage with their work there. Essays, visuals, all of that. Get into that. And I also want you to go to NoCopAcademy.com and educate yourself. Share it with at least two people sign up for petitions, share share images and videos of protests happening in Chicago, spread the word, the true people's history, not the dominant hegemonic narratives that exist that are steeped in white supremacy. And I really want people to listen, who are listening to this, to just go and do those two things. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you one last time, Benji, are there, is there anything else you feel like we didn't get to, any questions, comments, or concerns you want to make sure you throw in there right before we leave? I would just like to throw in there, folks should also go to copsoutcps.com, C-O-P-S-O-U-T-C-P-S.com to see the work that young people are doing to get police out of their schools here in Chicago and also follow Good Kids Mad City and follow Little Village Environmental Justice Organization to see some of the amazing work that young people and uh, communities of color are doing here every day in Chicago. The students are making their voices heard on this Felicia yesterday staging a die-in at City Hall to protest this planned $95 million police and fire training academy. Now they say they'd rather see that money go to education. The students are part of a movement they call hashtag no cop academy. Now they have the support of Chance the Rapper who also spoke out against the police academy at a city council meeting last fall. 
Now, the students demonstrated at City Hall yesterday, first disrupting a city council meeting, then moving to the lobby where they staged a die-in, setting up cardboard tombstones with the names of people who have been killed in police-involved shootings, plus the names of Chicago public schools and health clinics that have been shut in recent years due to lack of funding. Now, these activists say they have a hard time understanding why $95 million can go to training police and not underserved communities. We want the mayor to at least listen. You know, it's not so much a conversation of concession because it's very clear to say, I'm going to divest in these black schools and having all these schools be closed to say that we're going to have a $95 million cop academy. That doesn't need to happen. There needs to be better transparency. There needs to be better spending.